Hello and welcome to Recap, Per Capita's research and policy podcast, where we examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia. I'm your host this week, Matt Lloyd-Cape, Director of the Centre for Equitable Housing, and I'm joined uh, by Director of the Centre for New Industry, Shirley Jackson. How you going, Shirley? Yeah, not too bad, Matt. How you doing, mate? All right, all right, thanks. For those of you who are unfamiliar um, with you and the Centre, Shirley, could mm-hmm. you give a little bit of a rundown on what you do and what the Centre's all about? Yeah, absolutely. So the Centre for New Industry is an applied research centre at Per Capita. Um, I like to think about it because we're both running small, you know, applied research centres under Per Capita's uh-huh. banner. Um, you know, and you're really like the the Beatles, do you know what I mean? You're doing some really like cutting edge research that's like really exciting, you're really moving things forward. Whereas I'm the Stones, man, do you know? Like I'm trying to keep it real and do all the cool, funky stuff in, um, you know, uh, industry policy and skills. So the sort of tagline that I use when I'm talking about the Centre for New Industry is uh, we're all about economic diversification, decarbonisation and democratisation. So we're really about how we diversify Australia's um, industrial base and our economy. So making sure that it's robust, making sure that it's diverse and better able to navigate the global storms of our integrated global market. Uh Um, We want to make sure that we're trying to get out of fossil fuels in a way that is, you know, sustainable, a way that makes sure that we have jobs that are secure, that are skilled um, and that are able to sustain people in the regions that are particularly reliant on, you know, carbon heavy industries. So we want to make sure that we have a plan for that, as well as growing the fantastic new renewables that we have um, on the horizon. But it's also about trying to make sure that work and our economy is fairer and that we have a greater say over our economic lives, something that I think this area that we work on is really underexplored in the Australian economy. And we Mm. sort of sit behind a bunch of other really interesting examples around the world, whether that's in Italy, Switzerland, um, you know, uh, Germany, Mm. uh, the Scandinavian countries. So sort of looking at different experiences on how we can improve our control over our economic lives is another area that I'm really, really passionate about but basically we believe that Australia needs a vision for the future that provides greater skilled employment opportunities for workers and their families greater stability and security in regional communities and creating an economy that is better equipped to respond and adapt to economic and industrial change I mean, we, we don't just leave it up to the market to determine what's the best allocation of Yeah, resources. like, survey says that's bad. Like, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah, it hasn't worked perfectly for us. Uh, I really feel like we were sold a pup on just, you know, letting it rip. Mm. And we really need to reevaluate the role that states play, but also reevaluate the role that we can play outside of that state market dichotomy like how can we better equip communities to take control of their economic lives that's the stuff that i'm really really interested in great stuff yeah and i think there's some parallels with the housing system there Mm. where you know this idea that it's a supply and demand market that we just let the market decide what what the prices are obviously doesn't make any sense when you're talking about something that in your case determines the future prosperity of our country in mm-hmm. housing instance it determines whether someone has a roof over their head or not i mean it's 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 both the same thing you know without without um a secure home and a secure job you cannot live a secure life you know like i think that's something that we're all so passionate about here at Per Capita. And I think as well, like something that you and I share um, and as well with other colleagues that we work with is that impulse to reject those false dichotomies, like it's this or it's that, it's Mm. one thing or it's the other and try and recognise the complex systems that we're talking about uh, and realising that we don't just need to follow these, you know, single path dependency um, sort of narratives. Mm, Absolutely, Mm. yeah. Good stuff. 
Okay, so um, on to the topic of today's podcast. Yeah. So your latest um, submission, and you've been doing a lot of submissions recently, yes. is about abolishing indexation and raising the minimum repayment income for education and training loans bill. Mm-hmm. Bit of a mouthful. Yep. But we're talking about hex debt. That's right. We're talking yeah. about um, when it kicks in, whether it's still mm-hmm. founded on principles that make any sense in mm-hmm. today's market, uh, or today's economy, mm-hmm. and um, we'll talk about few different areas of that in the next um, 30 minutes or so. Yeah. So why was this something that the centre wanted to look into? and How did that work? Yeah, so there's it, it, kind of twofold answer to this. Like one is like very much like a, it's been a, uh, I don't want to say personal vendetta, but certainly a, a personal interest that I've had in this particular area through both my academic research. Um, when I was uh, doing my PhD, I started my PhD at Uni Melbourne, the Youth Research Collective. Um, and also at the one of the core pillars of the center for new industry is all around like our skills and training system so we call that that pillar skills for industry and we're really interested in how we build those skilled pathways that take you know young people from student to worker that take you know um uh, uh, older workers who have been um displaced by structural adjustments and make sure that they're getting jobs in a new economy like how do we build those pipelines and those connectors between those those different areas so this bill uh really fits into both of those um two categories uh it's a personal interest of mine because i had the good fortune to um, work for a little bit of time on the life pattern study at the University of Melbourne, which is the longest running study, uh, longitudinal study of Australian youth and really huge shout out to all of my um, friends at the Youth Research Collective who do fantastic work with that data. But we really started to see this breakdown in the employment and education nexus. So really, really fantastic work that's been done by um, Hernan Cuervo and Joanna Wynne um, at the University of Melbourne on, on this issue along with her a range of their other um, colleagues, but it used to be really predictive. Like when we think back to our, you know, like you and my, our parents' generation, um, for those of us who aren't familiar with Matt and I, we're both, uh, you know, being kind to us would say that we're elder millennials. I think yeah. you, you officially qualify as being Gen X. Um, but oh, our parents no, I'm millennial are, with Gen X rising. Yeah, I love That's that. Yeah, sign. 100%. I, um, so, yeah, we're, we're sort of at the top end of, of, of that experience, right? Like mm. the, the sort of early part of, of, of Gen Y or the latter part of Gen X. And at, for our, our parents' generation, for every year of addition, additional um, post-year 10 education that they did, there was a really like strong correlation in the income levels, right? So mm. basically for every single year that you did post-year 10, you had a bump in your income level by, you know, um, a couple couple of thousand dollars yeah. sort of every time. And that sort of increased, ex- well, not quite exponentially, but it increased rapidly as you moved through higher education and, you know, masters, etc. Whereas that's no longer... Well, until PhD level. Until know, PhD, PhD level, time. yeah, that's right. Because um, <laughs> universities have, uh, particularly now, uh, have been shattered, so that's no longer a safe career path like it once was. But, um, you know, Gen X was sort of the shock troops where we started to see this breakdown, but it's mm. like really in full force by the time the Gen Y is hitting the market. And no longer is what you're studying predictive of your future income levels. And so what we're seeing is so many young people go through and, you know, quote unquote, do the right thing right like they work hard they study hard they get into university because they're told by their you know parents who you know uh like like my parents and and their parents who didn't go to university university was always seen as like the best way to protect your economic Mm. interests right like you were going to move through 
um, university education and become a professional and then you'd be, you know, set for life. But that's just not been the case. Mm-hmm. So all these kids have been sold a pup on this. They've been told one thing and their experience is very, very different. So yeah. it's in this milieu that we start looking at hex debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the narrative that we use to justify our hex debt is no longer, the fa- foundational basis that it's based on is no longer accurate. Yeah, so I think um, it's it seems quite logical. Like you know, you go to university and you will have a higher wage, right? Like my my dad, he was the one of seven kids. He was the one of the youngest, and he was the first to go to university from that family. Not because of he was actually the, the dumbest of his cohort in, mm-hmm. in terms of academic tests, mm-hmm. but he was the first to go to university because he became a free uh, service in the UK, and that led him on a path to which now professor of law right so like mm-hmm. very different trajectory for his older mm-hmm. siblings that for that for, the, for them it wasn't an option and they were tradies nurses and so on um so it makes sense to me right like as mm-hmm. a, as a, a anecdotal experience to me it makes sense and i think for most people it would and it sounds like what you're saying is like the justification for hex was yeah you do the right thing you go to university you invest in your human capital and that will lead to greater bonuses in the uh, labor market so is that what the original idea was? Yeah, that's right. So like when uh, John Dawkins, who was the education minister in the Hawke um, government in uh, 1989, first introduced um, the, what are called income contingent loans, which we now you know refer to as our hex debt, um, you know, he, he used exactly that narrative. So he described how the bill, um, and here's the quote, um, would ensure that, quote, People who benefit from participation in higher education will be required to make a small contribution to the cost of their education and increase the fairness of funding arrangements for higher education, ensuring that the total burden of funding does not fall entirely on the taxpayer. And, like, when they introduced this, it was like, you know, I I think the most that people were paying was two to $3,000, right? Like, so it really was a small, you know, like covering the cost, just making sure that they were able to keep the amenities at the standard that they wanted after the rapid expansion of um, higher education that happened uh, during the Whitlam years, right? We had the similar mm-hmm. thing where all of a sudden university was free for people. Um, so all these people who were first in family were able to have exactly your dad's story. But I think it's one of these problems where this is really common in other economic studies, particularly behavioural economic studies, like we're really good at seeing our own hard work and we're really bad at seeing where we had luck Mm. and we're really good at seeing where other people had opportunities and bad at seeing the hard work that they do, right? Mm. So we, we, we see our own experience and go, well, why didn't everybody have the exact same experience? I worked really hard and I got ahead. And people can't imagine that there are other people working really hard and not getting ahead. Yeah. But, uh, you Similar know... Similar story in the housing market. Absolutely, you know, and it's that same thing where, like, it, it doesn't matter how hard you work and how highly educated you are if there aren't enough jobs go around right so what we're what we've been seeing over the past sort of 20 30 years is this gross expansion of the amount of young people that have higher education which is fantastic in terms of their like individual understanding of the world their knowledge base and all the rest but we haven't seen that increase in jobs in fact we've seen a decline in most of the jobs that are utilizing a lot of these um employment 
uh, it's, uh, these educational experiences, right? Mm-hmm. And that's why we're seeing really diverse and very varied by study area um, outcomes for um, people that are going through u- university. So um, the really like shocking statistic um, that, that comes out of this, uh, particularly from the graduate outcomes survey, is that um, half or more of people who graduated from psychology science and maths, legal studies, humanities or communications degrees were not working in uh, their professionally aligned career occupations within the four months after their graduation. Whereas if you were studying, um, you know, uh, uh, things like dentistry, medicine, uh, nursing, a lot of the allied health professionals, um, even engineering and veterinarian sciences, you know, two thirds to three quarters of those people of moving straight into their career paths. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got this real set of diverse and uh, uh, perverse uh, disincentives, I, I would argue, um, in the way that we're pitching university to people and not really giving them a clear picture of what that transition out of university and into the workforce looks like. Mm. I think that raises a couple of really interesting points. The first one is, um, is there a bit of chicken in the egg going on in in the way that we're framing education policy now, which is to try and drive everyone into STEM, because yep. we see these kind of linkages and we think that's the future. And I remember a couple of years ago, it was all about getting kids to code at school. And now yeah, it's like, right. oh, actually AI is going to do that for us. Just put it in yeah. GPT. So coding's off, you know. Um, but is this the idea that like, oh, well, these art grads are kind of useless for the economy, that we hear this narrative in the, in mm-hmm. the media. Mm-hmm. Um, are we? Is that correct? Or is it just, just that we've um, smashed a lot of the jobs that were potentially there for, um, you know, your arts graduates in the past. Yep. Um, yeah, is there, is there some chicken and egg there? I, I mean, it's a little bit of everything. Like there's a couple of different factors that I think are influencing this. And the first is that obviously what the economy needs now um, changes, right, over time. Like as we – so I remember when I was going through university, everyone was told that they should go and do IT degrees, right? Mm. Like they're just like, IT is the it's the wave of the future, all the rest. And then, you know, by the time that a lot of my friends were graduating with their IT degrees, the next generation that was coming through was being told the same narrative, but then their employment outcomes weren't as good because all of a sudden there was a glut of IT graduates mm. in the field, right? Mm. So I think we see that sort of lag because of the duration of um, – uh, tertiary education as opposed to something like vocational education where you can do like, you know, quick six month degrees and really start to funnel people into those gaps. Yeah. Um, so these narratives take time to get out there, but they also take time to dissipate. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like we spend all this money, the government spends all this money, businesses spend all this money, lobby groups spend all this money sort of pitching to the public that we're going to need X type of worker in the future. We've got these skill shortages. Mm. Um, and, you know, so parents who hear that start funneling their children towards those things. So there's that that narrative which is out there. There's also a secondary narrative where um, that's based on the education market, right? Like, and higher education is a market like anything else. The universities act just like any other business in a private, you know, competitive market would, and they're competing for a funding base. Mm. And particularly the way that the Jobs Ready Graduate package, which was passed in 2021 um, under the former government, the way that that's played out has been really, really damaging. So they thought they were doing, you know, they probably thought they were doing the right thing whereby they were making things like the STEM degrees cheaper um, and they were trying to recoup those expenses by raising the the price of... um, you know, humanities degrees, communications, so those ones that we were talking about before, which yeah. don't lead to those immediate career paths. 
But it's actually had the opposite effect, right? Because it's encouraged, these are these perverse incentives, it's encouraged the universities to start chasing the more costly degrees because they get more money for it, <laughs> right? So they're chasing their profits. They're looking to try and uh, maximise their their gains in the market that they're operating in. So they're marketing to students, come and study these really generalist degrees that are really going to encourage, you know, like creative thinking. They're going to encourage you to be flexible. But the job market isn't, at the moment, designed to sort of capture those. And, you know, then we're starting to go into some of those things that you were talking about earlier where uh, a range of the areas that would utilise those degrees, particularly the public service, you know, mm-hmm. there are generalist streams that they really encourage people from, you know, arts backgrounds, humanities backgrounds, communications backgrounds to come in and, and those are good jobs. Well, we had a, a funding and hiring freeze in the public service for 10 years and that there was a decline in the overall number of graduate positions over those 10 years. I think I, I think it was something like it was halved between 2013 and 2019. Um so we just we we've seen a, an absolute perfect storm of poorly designed policies that have created a real problem in the university sector, which I assume is why the go- the current government has announced its you know, new universities accord consultations, which is a really positive step mm-hmm. um, into looking instead of just piecemeal trying to target every individual area, we really do need a wholesale root and branch reform of like what the purpose of our higher education system is mm-hmm. and then evaluating its um, the way that it operates against that review and then trying to design a whole new package to reframe universities around the goals that we actually have for it. Yeah. I mean, I could talk about this for ages. Yeah. And the, the idea that um, um, generalizable um, sort of soft skills, uh, of, you know, value yeah. judgments and, and, and analysis and so on are not immediately transferable to a job but are nonetheless critical for mm. navigating a rapidly mm-hmm. changing technological mm. market versus... Anyway, I'm not going to go into too much. Let's yeah. get back to the... Um, uh, the sub. Yep. So hex is something that impacts a growing number of Australians. Submission mm-hmm. um, points out that Australians are more educated than ever, but the overall number of graduates in full-time employment, and I think full-time is critical here, yeah, are still below pre-GFC That's levels. Right. So how is that remotely possible after? How, how far are we off? 15 years from the GFC. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and we're seeing this in a range of um, factors when we look at the youth labour market more broadly where it just never recovered from the GFC. Like, And there's a real broken social contract. And I think that's at the heart of this submission, even though we're arguing some of the technical details. It's really that contract breaking mm. that has led to all of these things. Um, so we've seen a number of areas increase. So we've seen a rise of um, casual work and, uh, you know, preca- what we would call precariatization, where, you know, work no longer provides for a secure existence. You can't cover all your bills. You're not able to access things like home loans because you're not employed on mm-hmm. a permanent, you know, full-time contract, um, tying into your work, obviously. But that has also been driven by gro- the growth in the gig economy, the growth in all these... Uh, Industries like hospitality, for example, which if you go back to the 80s, um, accommodation and food services in the ABS was, um, I think, about uh, just just shy of 7% for, um, you know, most of the 70s and 80s. And then coming out towards the GFC, we see an explosion in hospitality like, and, and accommodation and food services now accounts for about a third of the youth labour market, right? So right. about a third of the people who are employed 
um, between the ages of 15 and 24 are working in hospitality um, and a significant proportion are um, working in retail as well. Do we have breakdowns for um, graduates working in those industries as well? Do we know how many people have finished an undergraduate degree and then go into those areas? I don't have the figures on me, but, yeah, there, there, there is, um, I think, through the Graduate Outcomes Survey does break down those areas. Um, we do know that figure that I was quoting before about the, the different study areas. We do know how many of them end up in their career path um, uh, occupations, but yeah, I, I don't have to hand how many of them are working in hospitality. Mm-hmm. Okay, fortunately, no, that's fine. Um, so it sounds like the shift to a service sector-driven economy, at least domestically, uh, very much service sector-driven, doesn't match up to an increase in um, better quality jobs. There's a whole bunch of tables that need to be weighted and uh, sheets that need to be changed on beds and so on. That have increased, um, and they haven't increased in terms of wages. And you know, mm-hmm. we were talking about wages earlier on. Like yeah. average wage growth over the last ten years, like two point two percent, something yeah, yeah. like that. Well, it's growth. even worse when we start talking about um, graduates, right? Right. Um, so yeah, in the in the graduate wage, um, which I don't know how this is in a front page story every single day, but like between um, two thousand and seven and. Um, 2022, nominally wage growth for graduates grew from 43K in um, 2007 to 68K in 2022. When you factor in inflation, like the the amount of money or or the purchasing purchasing power of every dollar that people are getting in that time, real growth only, and we use that term real growth in an economic sense, meaning that it's adjusted for that inflation. But real growth only goes from 62,256 in 2007 to 68K in um, 2022. Mm -hmm. And worse, like purchasing power has been stagnant since 2017. Basically, there's been no change in like how much your dollars buy Mm. as a graduate between 2017 and 2022. And there was a decline between 2021 and 2022. So it started going backwards. Yeah. So there's your broken social contract, right? That's right. So, okay. I'm just curious about this skills. Um, You know, we're saying that graduate skills are being underutilized, particularly Mm -hmm. in these arts and humanities degrees that have been pushed because they're higher grossing for the universities. Mm-hmm. But how are they being underutilised when we're constantly being told that there's skill shortages in the economy? Yeah. Um, that's like this endless narrative that we have skill shortages. We need to Absolutely. broaden our um, uh, economic migration pathways to allow for more occupations. Um, whether we're looking at teachers, nurses, mental health and social care workers, mm-hmm. we've got all these people... Uh, all these sectors, sorry, where we've got a, a shortage mm-hmm. of workers. Um, are people just choosing the wrong pathways or is it because universities are skewing entrance into um, high-yielding degrees or is it a combination of what's, what's actually happening here? Yeah, I mean, I ha- hate to keep giving the same answer, but the answer to your is it this or is it that is yes, right? <laughs> like it's, it's all of those things and it's real, really problematic. Like we haven't historically done a really great job of univer- using university sector to target skills shortages, right? That's been the, the domain of the vocational education and training system, so our TAFE system here in Australia. Mm. And, you know, we, we've seen that particularly here in Victoria. We've really led the way on that. But, you know, Queensland, New South Wales, South Australia, I think WA's got um, a version of this have started offering fee-free um, study through the TAFE system into some of those skilled areas where we know there are sh- 
um, labor shortages now. And in some ways, the vocational education and training space is better at that because it can quickly respond. Like mm. you can do a, a, a diploma in a year or even a certificate in six months and maybe be able to get into one of these qualified areas which are crying out for skilled workers. Mm. Um, vocational education and training also maps way better with on the job learning and, you know, it's, it's way more common for you to be work, earning and learning at the same time when you're right. going through vocational education training. So it's really good at responding to those things. But at the same time, we've still had nationwide skills shortages in some things that have always been that domain, right? Like in the metal trades, in the automotive trades, we've had, we have nationwide skills shortages in most of the metal trades, right? Mm. And those are good jobs. They're generally unionised jobs. They're generally jobs that are on large employers, big contracts in defence construction, um, you know, now we're starting to see a growth in advanced manufacturing. Um, these are good jobs that are crying out for people, yet we've got more law graduates than we've ever had and they have the worst employment opportunities, uh-huh. right? We've got nationwide skill shortages in nursing and midwifery, yet we've got more law graduates than ever. And uh, that's not to disparage law graduates. I'm not going to go in some, you know, like hackneyed uh, uh, baby boomer uh, lawyer joke. <laughs> Um, but it's just we're funneling kids into law because it sounds, again, to our baby boomer parents, like it's a safe career choice mm. that going on and being a lawyer or going and working in a legal area for a company is safe. But we've got a glut of law graduates mm. and we've got all these nationwide skilled shortages for nursing, midwifery, metal trades, um, and some skilled professions as well, things like audiologists and, you know, um, a, a highly skilled um Actuaries. So, yeah, there is a case where we're sort of selling people lifestyle that doesn't exist. Um, And we talked a little bit about that, about how some of the reforms have encouraged that and created some perverse incentives within the education market. Um, But at the same time, there's another narrative which is out there, which is that those sort of more vocational careers rather than professional careers are bad choices and that filters through to the perceptions of vocational education and training and the Mm. jobs that they provide for right i know for example when i was going through school it was seen as something you did if you couldn't get into university right right? like and you know i'm from i'm from queensland so i apologize for the language but they'd say that you know only dead s goes to um, vocational education and training. That was the thing that, like, our parents would would bandy around, you know, like the the truly good kids go to university. Um, And I remember being – going through university and I had a really rocky time. I got kicked out of university. Really? I I flunked out. I had – undiagnosed mental health was uh, in, living with insecure housing um, and you know in between housing for a while as well and I, I flunked out and I remember I was working in um, a bookstore while I, I was still at university and in this really struggling time and I ran into one of the guys that I knew who'd gone and done an electrical apprenticeship he'd left school at grade 10 and 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 he'd just bought his first house had his car yeah. no worries and I'm sitting there trying to you know, uh, uh, plan enough so that I can buy enough ramen to get through the the rest of the semester, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that we're yeah we we sell these things on um, status as well, right? And that's mm-hmm. a really damaging thing. Whereas you know, I'll be telling my my daughter like, be an electrician. That's the yeah. best thing that you can do, right? Absolutely. Like, yeah. So I think we need to be way more frank around chat using the university system just like we do the vocational education and training system and trying to channel people towards the where the skills shortages actually exist mm-hmm. um we need to review how we talk about 
the different educational options and try and have something more like um, uh, how the Germans structure their education system where there are multiple ways that you can move between applied learning in the vocational space and higher learning in the university space and there are multiple matriculation pathways between them, very common in Scandinavia as well, and try and break down some of those narratives which are actually based on false information and start telling people what's actually happening, not what we kind of wish would happen. Mm. Yeah, I remember coming here from the UK six years ago and you know my background I did a few years of carpentry and I was like okay I either go down the carpentry route or I go down the higher education route and I end up going to higher education but coming here you know I would have earned <laughs> in the same amount more yeah. in the trades than I would have um, in 100%. the office and I think that's something that we don't really discuss the status thing is a really interesting one because it's a kind of a hangover from a time when your law degree, you pretty much guarantee the job as a lawyer and Absolutely. then you go on to earn big bucks. And I mean, university is a perfect example of that, like the university career path, academics. Mm. Like, you know, it used to be that you went, you did your undergraduate, you did your honours, you did your PhD, you walked into a lectureship and then sat around waiting for tenure, right? Mm. Like now we have people that have been in the university system for like 10, 15, 20 years and never been on a contract that's longer than 12 months. They're yeah. constantly scraping, constantly trying to apply for their own job. So the narrative doesn't even make sense for them. They're the highest skilled people, or amongst the highest skilled people that we have in the country. They've got PhDs, they've got higher higher degrees of um, learning, and they've got extreme expertise in their areas, but they're not seeing that translate into you know, employment security and yeah. what kind of a crazy world is that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, yeah, maybe just uh, point out formal, what we mean is formal skills here. Like clearly, um, you know, every uh, career has the skill, like an incredible skills uh, absolutely. bank in, involved. Um, but yeah, in terms of bits of paper, those academics 100%. have more to put on the wall than anyone else. They've done everything the quote unquote right way. They've studied hard. Mm. They've uh, upgraded quote unquote their um, you know educational opportunities, but they haven't seen that translate into employment opportunities. Whereas you know, if you you go and do a metal trade, if you if you go and do midwifery, you're going to be almost guaranteed a job. Mm. And we're just not telling our kids that, and that's a real problem. Okay, so you mentioned earlier on that um, wages haven't really grown mm. for graduates since 2017. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the other sort of key stats or key sort of um, nuggets you want to pull out from the from the sub to, to tell the audience about? Yeah, like, I mean, it's just replete with um, all sorts of crazy statistics. Um, I've mentioned some of them already, but I think one of the central problems that we have is the repayment threshold. So the level of income at which you start paying your hex back. That's been reduced over the past um, 10 years, like uh, four separate times. And it's now at 48,361, which is just $6,000 above an annualized minimum wage income. Wow. So as soon as you earn above the minimum wage, you're required to pay back your mm. hex debt. And this is why I keep saying that the contract is just broken. Like if you're not in a better position by going through university and you're still earning just above the minimum wage, you shouldn't have to pay that back. The university system has failed you. You haven't failed yourself as mm. far as I'm concerned. And I, I just think that's an absolutely shocking figure that is, again, I, I don't know how this isn't front page news every single day, but the idea that it's $6,000 above the minimum wage per year and you start having to pay back your education. So while you're working as a in hospitality, in retail, in fast food, and you're paying back a degree that hasn't helped you. 
That's a real problem that's, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's absolutely crazy. Um, some of the other ones is to do with, yeah, as I said, that graduate um, employment growth. Um, so for Gen X's, um, you know, employment growth, so the number of jobs that were offered every year, um, grew at around 10% for uh, most of the latter part of the 80s um, and was generally in positive growth for um, most of the 80s until we hit the 90s recession. Um, so that led to, uh, and, and for any of the Gen X um, listeners, they'll remember the, the, the quote-unquote recession that we had to have and how hard that was for um, young people because um, unemployment shot up and employment growth dropped to a, a negative 10% in 1992. Mm. But it returned to positive figures by 1995. So it was a couple of years of hurt and then things and, and most of the economic figures kind of level out by mm-hmm. 1995 in the labor youth labor market. But for Gen Y, the height that we saw was 5% growth in 2008 and the GFC dropped that to negative growth by 2009 and it's never entered positive growth again. It's always been shrinking. So mm. the youth labour market in terms of gradual employment has been shrinking, which is really, really problematic. And, you know, um, we were talking before about the graduate outcome survey and all those different study areas that lead to different employment outcomes. Overall, we're getting about two-thirds of our grads that are ending up in full-time employment. And I, mm. I just have to ask the question, is that good enough? Is yeah. two-thirds of the people going to university ending up in their career paths, is that is that okay? Are we happy with one-third of young people not finding their way into the career path? So I'm not sure. Yeah, I but, wouldn't take those odds if you... Yeah, if you that's right, percent. 100%. Um, and yeah, the other one, as I mentioned, was that graduate wage stagnation. I, I, I was really shocked when I started punching in the, the, the figures and, and adjusting for inflation at just how stagnant our graduate wages have been. But it makes sense because graduate employment and entry level opportunities have been dropping. So mm. uh, we don't have really good data on this. The only data that I've seen that sort of tracks where are the entry level opportunities is, was conducted by the WGEA, so the uh, Workplace Gender Equality Agency. Yep. Um, And they have all sorts of fantastic uh, employment statistics. It's a really, really fantastic government organisation that we're really lucky to have. Um, But those entry-level opportunities have been declining and there's less than 15,000 graduate entry, um, entry-level opportunities for graduates in the labour market, Mm -hmm. less than 15,000 in a year, right? right? So that's why people are having to be parked in these precarious insecure, unaligned industries and they're just sitting around waiting for opportunities to come up. It reminds me of like, um, you know, I've got a friend who uh, went into, he's a classical musician and he went through the orchestra thing and that's how we said, he's like, it's around sitting around for waiting for a first chair to die so yeah. that you can get on one of the orchestras and try and find your way through. It's the same rationale but it's applied to our entire labour market and that's, that's really, really problematic. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just a really interesting conversation for you and me specifically to have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe blowing my, our own trumpets here a little. But we saw, we've seen this whole arc occur, mm-hmm. right? Like, I mean, sorry, it's, it's, for me, it's um, the arc is very clear because I was just about to go to university when Tony Blair bought in mm-hmm. this uh, in the UK, um, and the average, you know, annual amount was a few, I think it was like six hundred pounds a year or something like that. You know, it was yep. a nominal amount. Now, average student debt in the UK is 45 grand, which is you know, twice median wages or something like ridiculous like that. Yep. Um, so we've, we've seen this arc occur over our you know, mm-hmm. school to professional lives. Yeah, that's but right. for most people, in most young people, this is kind of the norm. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a kind of um, 
you know, acceptance to a certain degree that, oh, well, it's just how it has to be. Mm. Um, even though we know um, this came in under a political set of uh, criteria that, you know, you would get a bonus for, for uh, being, for educating yourself further um, and that you should repay some of that cost. Clearly that isn't working. Mm-hmm. So what recommendations are you making? Are we, should we be scrapping this whole system? Is there a case for reform? Yeah. Can you tell us about what you recommend in the... In yeah, the a, 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 absolutely. Like it's a, it's a case where we do need whole scale reform and I'm a, I'm a big fan of the um, current universities accord consultation because we do need to start taking the system as a whole and rethinking it as I've outlined. But there are a range of things that we know we can be doing now. And so we argued in favour of the bill um, as as it stood. And uh, specifically, we're in favour of the abol- abolition of indexation, which we haven't talked about much in, in, in this podcast. But the idea that these loans not only have been increasing in the amount that you're expected to pay, you're also paying interest on them effectively. Mm. You know, so uh, people who are... It, they're paying back their th- at the threshold level, which is just above the minimum wage, and they're paying thousands of dollars every year into their hex debt, but then it's being indexed, so... But they're surely not they're indexed them. to graduate wages, right? Yeah, unfortunately not. No? They're, oh, they're, shocked. That's okay. right, yeah. So so it's it's just moving those goalposts back every single year for those people who aren't making it through, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a really strong case for the abolition of indexation. Um, I also am a big fan of, and I argued this in front of the hearing, that we should increase the repayment threshold to the median wage because if your university career has not led to you earning at least what the majority of people are earning, then the university sector has failed you. Mm. You shouldn't be required to be paying that back until you start to see those benefits that John Dawkins outlined, right? Um, And the other two big areas that um, I sort of, uh, you know, when when I was asked at the hearing, um, the other areas that we would have... Um, been in favour of. The big one, I would say, is reversing the job-ready graduate reforms. Like, they were bad reforms that have led to those perverse incentives and that haven't actually led to better outcomes for um, young people. And I think we should reverse those reforms and and then look at it through the broader review of the university sector, which is being conducted by the government. So those are the sort of like immediate to medium term goals that we should be setting ourselves in terms of policy reform that would actually make it have a meaningful impact on people's lives. And it means more dollars in the pockets of some of the lowest paid workers, those you know young workers in hospitality, retail. And we know that people at the lower end of the income spectrum spend a higher percentage energy of their portion back into their local economies. Mm. So what's good for young workers in this case is really good for business owners in the local community as well. So um, I, I think those two major immediate reforms are real no-brainers when it comes to this. And, yeah, big big fan of the university's accord review and I hope that it goes well and that we do take it seriously and we reform the sector as a whole, not just tinker around the edges. Mm. Uh, it's funny, we've, we, you and I have talked a lot in the past about how um, in other economic systems, companies take a greater share of responsibility for training up mm-hmm. their own workforces. Mm-hmm. We don't have time for that today, but um, for any listeners that want to explore some of those themes a bit more, head over to our website or the Centre for New Industries website mm-hmm. um, and have a read of Shudder Jackson's submission and mm-hmm. also um, recommend his um, report from last year, Blueprint, which yeah, goes into you. more detail about how we reshape the economy more, more broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Shirley, I think that's all we've got time for today, but thanks so much for coming on and having a chat. It's yep. really uh, interesting. Yeah, it's good to have a about these things that affect us. It's just <laughs> nice that this conversation that we would usually have in the office anyway is just being recorded. Absolutely, so thanks everyone yeah. for joining Matt and I uh, for, for our, our, our daily whinge. <laughs> <laughs> we have about what's wrong. The yeah. daily whinge. That's right. <laughs> um, all right. I'd like to thank our listeners who joined us um, for our premiere episode back in March um, where Emma Dawson and myself talked about um, our most recent research in the housing area. Um, and thank you for listening to this, our second episode. We'd really appreciate for you to take the time to um, have a review, if you can, on your platform of the, of the review and share it around to anyone that you think might be interested. Um, our subscription is available on Apple, Stitcher, Deezer, iHeartRadio, and YouTube. Um, alternatively, please sign up to the Per Capita uh, newsletter at percapita.org.au and you'll never miss another episode again. Um, join us next time when we'll continue to examine inequality and work towards a fairer Australia. This show is a production of Per Capita, the independent progressive think tank dedicated to fighting inequality in Australia. And we're committed to providing ad-free and editorially independent content too. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Roy Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present. <laughs>